Good morning, Renovation Church. Okay, all right, all right, I get it, I get it. Thank you. Well, my name is Bernie Elliott. I'm one of the uh, elders on staff here, and it's, uh, it's a joy to be able to open God's Word together now. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 30 as uh, we continue our way through um, the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. This is God's word. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Would you bow your heads and again pray with me? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we just uh, just, uh, tell you right now, we need your help. So would you, by your Spirit, speak to us in your word? Would you cause your word to take root in our hearts, in our lives? And would you bring forth fruit for your honor and your glory? So we pray, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The U.S. Bullion Depository, better known as Fort Knox, 
is this veritable fortress that houses 147 million ounces of gold. Uh, some people think it's about half of, of the U.S. gold reserves. And, and though it's just a little over a 10-hour drive from, from right here at Renovation Church, you can just go ahead and put that on places you're never going to go, right? Because you are not permitted entrance into Fort Knox. You will never once in your life, I promise you, uh, it's a promise, you will never once step foot inside the vault at Fort Knox. It is probably one of the most restricted places on planet Earth. And the vault is, is lined with these granite walls, and it has this 20-ton blast-proof um, door that en enters into it. And um, security experts say there are, there are a dozen published or known security measures to gain entrance to the vault. There's alarms, there's um, barbed razor wire, there's cameras, there's guards, there's, uh, there's, there's uh, apparently even, according to some rumors, uh, a landmine field leading to the entrance to the vault. You ain't getting in, okay? Um, no one person actually knows the entire combination to the vault. Several people have to come together to enter the vault. You can try really hard, but try all you want. You are not getting in. Six Flags, Darien Lake. It's just over a 90-minute trip down the thruway, right? Just to the west. And it promises fun for families and perhaps some thrills for those of you who are into that sort of thing. And uh, with shirt and shoes and $34.99, you can walk through the gate and have a fun-filled day. You'll be welcomed in by the, by the staff there. I wonder if you were pressed, which, uh, which one of these scenarios would you say is more closely aligned to how you think about the, your hope of entering eternal life? Is it more akin to you getting into Fort Knox or more like you going to Six Flags Darien Lake? Is it absolutely impossible or are there some hurdles, some obstacles in the way, um, but, it, but it's possible? Well, our text has a clear answer for us, and I hope you hear it. So let's look at it. Jesus is approached by a man that opens our text. He's inquiring about uh, what, is, what is required for him to enjoy life with God forever. Verse 16, he says this, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now you'll notice in the text, Jesus doesn't respond directly to this question at first. Instead, he wants to question the man's assumptions about his understanding of good. So in verse 17, Jesus poses a question back to him. Look at what he says. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So Jesus wants the man and us to see that there, are, there aren't just some things, whether they're actions or words, that are inherently good. There aren't just inherently good words or inherently good actions. Good isn't some subjective standard. Good finds its meaning 
in God. Otherwise, good has no fixed order or objective grounding. God doesn't command certain things because they're nice. God doesn't command certain things because they're right or, or good in themselves. God commands certain things in his law because they reflect his nature and his character. They reflect his holiness and his beauty. That's why God commands things and calls them good. So when we're faced with God's law, when we hear God's law, when we read his commandments, what we are faced with actually is not just random commands, moral code 3.1, but really the purity and the beauty and the desirability of our God, the creator. That's what Jesus says to the man. So having established the rationale for the moral order, Jesus eventually gets to his question about what good deed he must do to inherit eternal life. Look at it at the end of verse 17. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Right? The man says, uh, inexplicably almost, uh, which ones? As if he didn't know which commandments. Right? Well, Jesus entertains this stupid question, um, and he basically goes through the sixth through the ninth commandment. Right? Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And then he goes back, he doubles back, and he utters the fifth commandment. Hey, honor mom and dad. And then, having cited what most people call the second table of the law, Jesus summarizes it with a quote from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. second table of the law is about loving neighbor as ourselves. So this is what Jesus is communicating to us, to the man. The standard for eternal life is personally, perfectly, and persistently obeying God's law. Personally, perfectly, persistently obeying God's law. Complete Conformity to the Creator's commands. I hope you kind of feel that. That's a staggering standard. And in Matthew 5, Jesus has kind of laid out the implications of it for us. Because as Ethan, uh, in introducing our confession, said, if you become angry with your brother, you've murdered him. Every one of us who looks at another with lustful intent has committed adultery. Those of us who carelessly promise something but then renege on that promise, we've devalued our words and we've borne false witness. Kids, when you've refused to listen to mom and dad, you've violated God's law. Our hands, every one of us, are guilty. Our lives are marked by rebellion against the one who is good. We have fallen short of God's glory, of God's goodness. Now, the man in this text that Jesus is interacting with, he claims, I don't know how, but he claims to at least superficially to have obeyed commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and 5. And, and loving neighbor as self. 
Verse 20, if you look at it with me, uh, the, the young man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Um, instead of kind of smacking the man or, or laughing or groaning at that response, look at Jesus' answer to him in verse 21. If you would be perfect, again, hear that standard. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sadly, sorrowfully, because he had great possessions. So while this man had apparently lived an outwardly moral life, right? Never murdered, never really slandered somebody, never stole from others. He was an upstanding, church-going guy. A guy we'd say, boy, that's a man of integrity. There was one commandment he did not keep. The first. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, says this. You shall have no other gods before me. This man had made a god of his wealth. And in so doing, probably broke the tenth commandment, which Jesus leaves out conspicuously. Thou shalt not covet. This man had made a god of his wealth, and he could not walk away from his great love when he was called to by Jesus. In external, observable behavior, this man excelled, but his heart was controlled by money. You see, it's not just our, our behavior or our words that must be in submission to God, but, but in fact our inclinations. Our hearts, as well as our hands, must be perfectly inclined and conformed to God's law. God must be our greatest love. God must be our highest affection. Or we will have forfeited entering eternal life because we have rebelled against God's order. And that means trouble. Because that means Salvation is an unachievable treasure. It's simply unachievable. Now Jesus takes this opportunity when, when the man walks away. He just walks off the scene to teach his disciples, to teach us about one of the great dangers in life that vies for our affections. And that is wealth. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I, just be honest with you, this is different the words of Jesus here, than the way that I often hear wealth talked about in Christian circles in the church. I often hear wealth talked about as something neutral, that a person can possess and, and use for good, or, or not use for good. Or wealth talked about as a great blessing. 
And I think in the church we tried to somehow tame and domesticate Jesus' warning against the dangers of wealth here. And this should give us pause. Jesus is only with difficulty. Only with difficulty will somebody with riches enter the kingdom. Jesus' point is that riches are an impediment to actually trusting the Lord. They cause us to to trust in ourselves, in our savings, instead of the Lord's provision for our daily bread. Uh, If things go sideways in the economy here, it's okay. I got it banked. It's going to hurt a little, it's going to sting, but I'm okay. Instead of, Lord, give me today my daily bread. They tempt us to find our joy in things that, that wear out, that rust, that are destroyed, that are stolen, instead of finding our joy in the source of all joy, the blessed God. Only with difficulty will somebody with riches enter the kingdom. The Book of Common Prayer I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it directs us to pray. Listen to these. In all our time of tribulation, in all our time of wealth, in the hour of death, and in the day of judgment, good Lord, deliver us. Notice it has us pray for our moments of tribulation as well as our moments of prosperity and wealth. Tribulation, disease, war, marital turmoil is put on par with wealth as something that can cause us to stumble. Again, this seems wrong-headed to us. This sounds awkward to us. But it's Jesus' own teaching. You recall the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. Jesus talks about the seed that's cast on different soils. And in verse 21, he explains that the seed which fell on rocky soil endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Listen to this next part. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world. The deceitfulness of riches chokes the word, and it proves unfruitful. Notice Jesus talks about the twin, uh, the twin obstacles of trials and riches, wealth. And of course, we might be thinking, well, wealth, yeah, I mean, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, right? Wealthy guys. And sure, they're loaded. Just consider this. The the global median income is just over $2,000 per person. Almost all of U.S. residents rank in the top 10% of earners in the world. In biblical terms, friend, we're rich. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't check out right here. Wealth doesn't make us evil. Okay? But it does present 
a hurdle. Only with difficulty, Jesus says. Wealth isn't evil. Rich people aren't evil. But riches, wealth, possessions are an impediment to trusting the Lord. Salvation doesn't require that every one of us unload what we have. Think about it. Abraham was saved. Job was saved. Zacchaeus was saved. These were all rich men. Jesus knew possessions were a God for this man. And he knows that possessions are a God for many of us. It's a difficulty for us. Maybe it's not, but there are other temptations. And we can easily shrug off, ah, riches aren't an issue for me. Wealth isn't an issue for me. Possessions, they're not an issue for me. Brother and sister, hear Jesus' words again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is taking the largest animal common in that part of the world. I mean, the largest animal possible in that part of the world. And say it's easier for this thing to go through the smallest opening in daily life. The eye of a needle. It's easier for this thing to go through this than for a person with riches to enter the kingdom. I think, given that warning, this deserves some fairly serious attention on our part. Not just, eh, it's no big deal for me. In response to this, Craig Blomberg writes, true Christian stewardship will examine mortgages, credit, giving, insurance, investments, and a whole host of areas of life not brought under Christ's lordship. Don't stiff-arm Jesus' warning this morning. Wealth is an obstacle. Just one obstacle, but wealth is an obstacle to entering the kingdom. But the point is this, brother and sister, salvation is an unachievable treasure. There is no good work that provides the golden ticket. The law demands the impossible. The law shows us both our, un, our inadequacy and our unwillingness. We should feel a bit of despair as we think about this. The law should cause us a certain amount of distress. And I think if we don't feel the weight of this in some way, we aren't actually dealing with Jesus' words. We aren't actually considering God's law. We're either lowering the standard of the law by legalism, pretending that somehow, yeah, we can, we can keep it. I can do it. Or we're saying, eh, conformity to God's law. It's not critical. It's not crucial. But it is. And we must come to grips with the fact that salvation is an unachievable treasure. If we're listening well, we might conclude there is no hope for any one of us. Well, the disciples heard loud and clear. They got that message. We see their response in verse 25. Look at it with me. 
When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonishing. Who then can be saved? Right? They get the message. This is, this is hopeless. Jesus' reply in the next verse is instructive for it. Look at it with me. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. Who then can be saved? You've got no shot of pulling this off on your own. You're not going to tour Fort Knox. You're just not going to. There is no good deed to be done. There is no ability or even willingness within you to keep the commandments perfectly. There is no drive in you strong enough to satisfy God's desires. So if you're relying on trusting in, looking to yourself, you have no chance. It's impossible. With man, this is impossible. But... Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, what Jesus is teaching is that salvation is an act of God. If this is what the law demands, then salvation must be an act of God, because it isn't within our grasp. It's it's tightly secured in Fort Knox. We're not getting there. Salvation must be an act of God. And here's what you need to know about the act of God. God didn't just wave his magic wand and say, you know what, I'm a nice guy. They did their best. I'll save them. A for effort. Nice work. Nice work, ladies and gentlemen. No. God appointed a representative to fulfill the law. To perfectly, personally, persistently keep God's commands. And that representative, he applied that record of obedience to us. And he appointed this representative to not just live a sinless life, but to stand in our place as a condemned sinner. He bore God's wrath for us. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This representative is Jesus. And what an astonishing, happy exchange this is. This was not owed to you in any way. There was nothing in you that predisposed God to act this way towards you. Friend, it is God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and acceptance. Not I, I, I got dressed appropriately and here's my $34.99. Let me in, God, eh? Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Jesus is all our hope and our righteousness. Because salvation is an unachievable treasure, salvation must be an astonishing act of our God. Salvation is an astonishing act of God in which He does what we cannot and will not ever do. 
Friend, if you know your rebellion against God's law this morning, if you know the stain and the guilt of sin, don't don't go on trying to justify yourself in God's sight. Stop trying to get into Fort Knox. Rest, rely on, trust in what Christ has done. For those of you who have trusted, brothers and sisters, rejoice once again at the astonishing act of God. Right, the, the words to him, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me to him who death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Because salvation is an unachievable treasure, it must be an astonishing act of God. Now, some people might wonder about the trade-off that the man made. I mean, he decided on his wealth. I mean, is it worth giving up everything to have this, this salvation? The man in the story decided it wasn't worth it. Jesus addresses this question in response to Peter's inquiry. After all, Peter and the other disciples, they had left their family behind. They had left the family business behind. Right? They left their nets, followed Jesus. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Is making God my priority really worth it? I mean, it's a struggle in this life. Is it worth it? Look at what salvation involves in these verses, because salvation is accompanied by unimaginable blessings. First, salvation involves a new world. Jesus says it there. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, free from the presence of sin and the temptation of sin. No more mourning or pain, no more death, no more crying. What does the absence of those things not overshadow in this life? What would we not give up to have such a reality? Salvation involves a new world, but it also involves the rule of the Son of Man. Jesus will reign. As Daniel 7.27 says, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. When we look around at our leaders, our rulers, our kings, our presidents, our prime ministers in this world, who would not want so a, a, a wise and gentle and just ruler like the Son of Man. Come on! Salvation involves a new world, the rule of the Son of Man. And perhaps surprisingly, salvation involves our participation in God's reign. We also will sit with Him on thrones, ruling with Him. 
So though we might be despised now for exalting Christ, though we might suffer loss now to walk in obedience to God, we will reign with the great King. Revelation 22, 3-5 says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The presence of God in our midst will be a treasure that far surpasses any of the costs of discipleship today. Jesus says salvation involves the eclipse of any so-called loss by the unimaginable blessings of God. And then Jesus has one last thing to say in this passage. Many, verse 30, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Those who put everything into earthly success, here's a, here's a promise that will one day realize how empty, how pointless, how worthless, how futile that all was. They'll be last. But those who now reject the world's value and set their eyes on God, regardless of the cost, will be first in the new creation. Brothers and sisters, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You who are mourning now, burdened by, by life's sorrows, encumbered by losses, there will be a new world in which Christ, our groom, reigns and rules. There will be a new existence with innumerable treasures. So receive God's salvation in Christ because salvation is an astonishing act of God accompanied by unimaginable blessings. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray, we pray even now that you would continue to work in our minds and in our hearts, that you would show us, that you would convince us of our sinfulness, of our corruption of our rebellion, of our total inability to please you as we should, to offer you the worship you are due. Show us that complete conformity to your law is just, it's, it's impossible. And I pray that you would apply your grace, astonish us with your grace in Christ Jesus. That though we deserve nothing but your wrath and your anger for eternity, you bless us with everything in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would give some eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And Father, we pray that you would strip away our love for the things that are temporary and transitory in this life. 
fix our hope on you, the one who is immovable and worthy. May you receive all blessing and honor and glory and might. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.